0: Welcome to the Game Changers podcast, where we have clinical conversations that impact your pharmacy practice. Let's listen in as our team discusses this week's clinical practice game changer.
1: Hello and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I'm your host Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University and Internal Medicine Clinical Pharmacist at Methodist Hospital. Today, I'm honored to have a special guest with me, uh, our new Cardiology Clinical Pharmacist at Methodist, uh, Dr. Uh, Matt Boyd. So, welcome nice Matt. To be here, uh, Dr. Boyd is a welcome addition here at Methodist Hospital, but uh, also more importantly, he's a cardiology specialist who did his PGY two at Northwestern. I understand, so yeah. outstanding. So, uh, the guy will, will uh, Dr. Boyd will definitely give. Uh, more information than I possibly could uh, when we're talking about cardiology subjects. So I hope he likes this enough that he's going to want to do it. Again. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes after this. He's going to go, oh, I ain't going to do that again. So I don't know. Anyway, so uh, again, welcome, Dr. Boyd. Uh, so today we're going to talk about something that uh, has definitely, been, at least in my circles, generated a lot of uh, hue and cry, and uh, that's because I think it's it's it has the potential to really kind of turn what we've done in anticoagulation for fibrillation in the last several years kind of on its head a little bit, so I can certainly see why a lot of experts are, are kind of talking about this paper. Uh, the paper is uh, actually, it's not been published yet. Um, you can actually get it on the circulation website for free, but yeah, it's the actual final uh, galley copy. The, the actual paper has not been fully published, but it was announced at the European Society of Cardiology meeting a couple weeks ago. And uh, again, uh, has really uh, uh, set a lot of people talking, uh, shall we say. And the the title of the study is the Frail FAF Study, uh, the use of anticoagulation uh, for atrial fibrillation in elderly patients who are frail. So that's the key piece. And of course, that's where the name of the uh, study came from. It is a pragmatic randomized control trial that was done in the Netherlands. Um, it is worth noting that whenever we talk about studies done in Europe or in Australia, that is a more integrated healthcare system in the United States. And I actually think that that might be an issue with, with this paper. Uh, it was presented, as I said, at the uh, ECS com- uh, Congress uh, just a couple of weeks ago, but again, not fully published yet, but the, you can certainly download the draft for free on the circulation website. Uh, the paper itself notes that and I'm sure everyone listening knows this atrial fib is associated with, with numerous bad things, including a uh, stroke, uh, heart failure, uh, acute increased mortality, et cetera, et cetera. It's stock triangular related to age, as we all know. And they say that, you know, uh, patients over age 80, about 10% of them are going to have atrial fibrillation. So again, it's, as the population ages, we're just going to see more and more and more patients with atrial fib. We know that that stroke prevention is, is the, is the primary uh, prevention tool of anticoagulation and, If you're an old man like me, you remember when everybody was on Warfarin and I have several friends who basically made their living uh, doing anticoagulation clinics. they're not doing that much. Anymore. <laughs> uh, though, though, in, in fairness, there are some, some, some very good anticoagulation clinics still going out there because again, d- you know, uh, despite everyone recommending DOACs, there is going to be a population, you know, there's always going to be a role for warfarin. But the bottom line, as we all know, is that DOACs have largely replaced uh, warfarin just because they're much easier to, to dose. You don't have to check INRs. But I think most importantly, clinical studies have shown decreased bleeding, particularly decreased, uh, decreased major bleeding uh, between uh, the two big DOACs used in the United States uh, and, and warfarin. So, you know, at least in my world, and, and I suspect those, you know, listening primarily in the United States, you know, that you've seen a, a dramatic increase in DOAC use and a, and a relative decline in warfarin use, I would say, that my inpatient service, it's probably now a 10 to one ratio that people coming in are on, you know, a uh, pixaban or rivaroxaban versus warfarin. So, uh, so, I mean, you know, multiple guidelines, multiple studies have suggested that from at least from a safety perspective, these drugs are are better and at least as effective at warfarin and preventing stroke and, and uh, systemic embolism. So that's terrific. So why would anybody even question that? The authors of the study note that one of the big exclusion criteria for uh, for particularly the the rocket and aristotle studies was patients who were very frail and the definition of frail of course gets a little the dicey but but the bottom line is that they noted that that patients who who basically weren't fully healthy ambulatory elderly patients were often excluded from these trials and so they noted that that it's maybe worth taking a look at whether the same benefits as, as uh, uh, talking about bleeding with uh, the doax is is really validated in patients who are fragile and so uh, they say because we don't have a lot of data suggesting that because these patients have high comorbidities or usually on multiple multiple medications uh, they're dependent on others for for because of due to reduced capacity that you know that the outcomes may not be the same with with frail elderly patients compared to uh, the patients who were studied in, in Rocket for rivaroxaban and Aristotle for apixaban. So that's where the frail AF study goes comes along. It was a pragmatic investigator initiated multi center open label randomized superiority study. Try and say that fast five times. Uh, uh, and it was done in the Netherlands, and so uh, it was done uh, primarily in seven large anticoagulation clinics in the Netherlands. Um, and of course, met all the criteria for getting it funded and, and, and having all the ethics associated with it being approved. Uh, in the study, uh, t- uh, to be included in the study, you needed to have over age 75 Uh, they were already enrolled in uh, anticoagulation treatment with warfarin. So that's an important piece to keep in mind is that these patients were already stable patients who were getting their INR checked regularly, you know, and again, in in anticoagulation uh, uh, clinics already on warfarin. They then uh, divided those patients and said, okay, we're going to take a cohort and continue them on warfarin, and then we're going to take a cohort and, and switch them over to a DOAC uh, they uh, to be in, in in the study itself you had to score at least a three on the Gronogen fr- uh, fragility indicator never heard of it before <laughs> I actually had to pull pull the, the actual uh, paper that it did, and it's, it's interesting. I've just never heard of it. And it's it's a simple scoring system where they take a look at, you know, your overall mobility. Are you Can you go grocery shopping? Can you, you know, go to the bathroom by yourself without help? Uh, is your vision okay? Is your hearing okay? You know, have you lost weight because of, of, of uh, uh, yeah, unintentionally, and those all add up scores, basically. And so when it all said and done, uh, patients who have a score of three, and that's what you needed to be in the study, were capable only of limited self-care, they were confined to bed or chair, and and, and about less than 50% of waking hours uh, were they up and around. So basically, these were patients that were largely housebound, that uh, really uh, could only go out out of their house with the help of, of of some sort of support, significant others or other sort of support, and uh, about 50% of their time, they were confined to a bed or chair. The only thing worse than that was was a score of four, which we had completely disabled, patients that can't carry on any self-care. So these were definitely frail patients. Um, I, I, you know, I may not know everything about the uh, definition of of fragility, you know, when it comes to the elderly, but uh, I absolutely think, yeah, these were not, uh, you know, healthy ambulatory elderly patients by any stretch of the imagination, because that's what it had to be in the study. Um, Then uh, they were excluded if they had uh, valvular atrial fib, which they defined as patients who had uh, a mechanical heart valve or severe uh, mitral valve stenosis, which is uh, basically what the the indications for uh, DOACs are. They couldn't have an EGFR below 30 and they couldn't be in any other study basically. So that was how the study uh, inclusion exclusion criteria rolled. So looking at the methods of the study, patients were randomized to the index group. So those are patients who are switched to a NOAC-based treatment. Uh, and again, they did not necessarily say you had to be on, on a, uh, they didn't say which uh, DOAC you needed to be on. They did suggest that when they were asked, they would try to use either a Pixaban or Rivaroxaban, but you could pick any of them. So some patients actually were on a Doxaban. Um, I didn't see where patients were on Dabagatran, which is kind of what I see as well. Uh, and then the uh, control group of patients who are just maintained on Warfarin. And uh, they, uh, they used either one or three milligram tablets targeting an INR of two to three. They used block randomization uh, to stratify by which service, because these were all anticoagulation services uh, in the Netherlands, uh, and as renal function as well. Um, Taking a look at the outcomes, the primary outcome was the occurrence of major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding, which is pretty much what you see all the gu- uh, studies now look at. And this was based on the ISTI ISTH guidelines of, of what a major bleed is, which is defined as a fatal bleed or a bleed in a critical area or organ such as intracranial, intraspinal, interocular, retroperitoneal, et cetera, et cetera, um, or uh, bleeding leading to a fall of hemoglobin of more than two grams per deciliter, and or bleeding leading to a transfusion of two or more units, whereas clinically relevant non-major bleeding is defined as basically any bleeding that's not major bleeding, but has either, it prompts a face-to-face consultation with a healthcare provider, requires a medical intervention by a healthcare professional, or leads to hospitalization or increased level of care. So this was primarily a safety based study. So, I mean, you know, they they designed and powered the study more for safety than for efficacy. However, the secondary endpoints included all-cause mortality. Um, they looked at different complications associated from bleeding, but they did, again, look at, at the occurrence of, of all-cause thromboembolic events, including ischemic stroke, TIAs, peripheral artery thromboembolism, and then the composite of that and uh, major or, or minor uh, uh, clinical bleeding as well. So, again, the study was really designed as a safety study, but they did look at secondary outcomes as efficacy as well study uh, uh, stats were pretty reasonable i thought um they assumed they were going to get a relative reduction of 20 to 30 percent in bleeding complications when switched to a NOAC which is about what you'd expect to see based on uh the, the studies that are currently published uh everything else about the stats kind of made sense there was nothing really strange or unusual they used uh, uh the independent variables in a cox model which would would, would make sense Um, and, and, and again, everything else kind of seemed to to make sense as far as the, the stratification, the power and all that other stuff. So in the study themselves, uh, they, they, uh, looked at, uh, patients from 2018 to, uh, uh, to 2022, they screened about 2,600 patients, but, uh, and the majority of those not included, uh, were, were just basically non-frail patients. And so when it was all said and done, they had about 1,400 patients that were then randomized to the two groups what were these patients, what did they find, and what does our expert, Dr. Boyd, say about all this? We will find out about that as soon as we hear from our sponsor, CTE Impact.
0: Are you a pharmacist by design? Since we hold a vital position on the healthcare team, it is our responsibility to advance our knowledge and skills so we can provide the best possible care to our patients. Being a pharmacist by design means striving to be the best version of ourselves, not just as professionals, but as individuals dedicated to improving patient outcomes. Learn more about Pharmacists by Design at CEimpact.com. Join us and begin your journey to being the best version of your pharmacist self.
1: So, we are back talking uh, about the frail AF study. Every time I say that, I have to kind of chuckle and uh, uh, looking at what the results were of this study uh, that looked at warfarin versus DOAX in, in uh, patients who are fragile, looking at primarily bleeding outcomes. So, uh, when, when we take a look at, at the patients themselves, uh, about 41% of the patients, uh, 40, 41% of patients were female. Uh, the type of atrial fibrillation, though I'm not sure that really matters anymore, well, about half of them had permanent atrial fibrillation. And then there was the other two phenotypes that you saw their fragility score was four uh, the median fragility score was four so again these were were pretty uh, fragile patients that were, were not ambulatory really that really weren't able to live in, in the community by themselves so these were you know pretty fragile patients, I guess is what you'd say, with, with actually 74% of patients having a, having this gronogen fr- fragility indicator of four or greater. Most of them were on multiple medications, big surprise there. Uh, most of them had problems with their memory. About 20% of them had a difficult time just getting around the house, et cetera, et cetera. Mean chaz vascore was four, so again, at, at high risk. Uh, A majority of them had hypertension um, and then diabetes, all that other stuff was kind of along. EGFR was about 62 mils per per minute uh, between the two groups, um, and concomitant antiplatelet drugs were actually fairly low, to be honest with you. It sounds like in in the Netherlands they do a better job of doing that than we do here, about 2% of patients in, in, in both arms, basically. So what did they, they find in the study? Uh, well, they, they basically uh, had to stop the study and they, they actually uh, had a, da- a data safety monitoring board. And when they reviewed the data at a break point, they decided to, to halt the study for futility uh, because they basically found that after complete follow-up, the hazard ratio for the primary outcome was actually 1.69 after switching to a NOAC uh, compared to continued INR-guided uh, uh, warfarin treatment. So bottom line was that they found a 69% increase in uh, uh, major bleeding and clinically relevant non-major bleeding in patients who got switched to a DOAC. Yes, that's what you heard. I I, was surprised as everybody else when I read this, that yes, they found a relative increase of about 70% of uh, major bleeding, clinical relevant non-major bleeding in patients who were switched to warfarin. Um, Most of that was driven by clinical, uh, clinical relevant non-major bleeding, particularly your genital bleeding and big surprise gastrointestinal bleeding. Uh, That was uh, observed uh, the most uh, uh, difference, whereas uh, differences in hemorrhagic stroke and intracranial bleeds was actually very similar between the two. So most of this was driven by by uh, uh, non critical site bleeding or, or death from from bleeding as well subgroup analysis really didn't show a whole lot of difference between those two so when they looked at renal function the numbers were very similar uh, when they looked at whether it was rivaroxaban versus apixaban and I think this was, was probably surprising to a lot of people that the overall risk uh, was was very similar in bleed I think I think you know uh, we, we there's at least some retrospective data to suggest that for example rivaroxaban may be associated with a higher incidence of GI bleed so I think that kind of, that would probably surprise some People, uh, but they did find that that all this did not apply to a doxapan. They actually found that the numbers were were significantly more in line uh, uh, with with warfarin with the Doxaban. As I've said, I've, I don't think I've ever seen anybody on a doctor, I always joke to students that it, you know, it, you know, I, I'm not really sure I want to use a drug where you can't use the drug if your GFR is too high. <laughs> I mean, that's that's got to be a first in the FDA, right? So, so basically, the the, the, the authors uh, suggest that you know uh, they were surprised. I think as, as anybody else that that not only did they find a statistically significant increase in, in bleeding, but it was you know I, I think clinically relevant as well. I mean, when you take a look at the overall numbers, example for GI bleeding, it's like 2% versus a 0.6% increase in patients who uh, were on on DOAC. They did find that, that there was no difference as far as, as the efficacy outcomes, that, that uh, thromboembolism was similar between the groups. I suspect the study wouldn't have been powered to show a difference in uh, just efficacy, even if they had, uh, had particularly looked at it, but they did not find that difference. Uh, they also note that that there were some some limits. They noted that their population was already tolerant to warfarin treatment and that you might not see the, the same results in patients who have never been on any anticoagulant and you decided to put them on warfarin versus a NOAC and I think to my my uh, way of looking at things, that's probably one of the biggest strikes against the study, in in honesty. They note that other studies that, you know, were designed a little bit different, they were bigger, for example, they had probably more patients in them. So that may have played a role. Uh, They also note that, uh, you know, how uh, patients are treated uh, with warfarin in the Netherlands may not reflect how patients are treated with warfarin in other parts of, of, of the world. They note that that level, that levels of time and therapeutic range, which back when we used a lot of warfarin was kind of a marker for how efficient your your anticoagulation clinic was Were not measured however they they know that historically in the netherlands it's quite high and i suspect that the numbers would be lower uh not so much in i think in in, in standard anticoagulation clinics but you know in just joe primary care a clinician who's just using warfarin on patients i think studies have suggested that that uh in patients who aren't in anticoagulation clinics time and therapeutic range is is much different so that may play a role as well. So they basically, you know, walk away from the study suggesting that, you know, uh, not that we should not use DOACs in, in frail patients, but that uh, uh, in patients who are on warfarin are doing well on warfarin, who are very fragile, that the benefit of switching to a DOAC may be minimal. I think that was kind of a conservative way for them to look at it. So Dr. Boyd, what do you think about this study as an expert?
2: I honestly, I was a little taken aback by it. I kind of thought this was going to be like the last nail in the coffin that we needed for warfarin and right. we were never going to have to dose warfarin as pharmacists again um but unfortunately that's kind of not how it ended up right it even made me kind of reflect and like look back at the past literature that even was done i was like do i want to look at the aristotle do i want to look right. at the rocket i even pulled up the edoxaban trial not that it even <laughs> matters because we don't use it in the united states very much at all but
1: there's an edoxaban I, study
2: <laughs> right i know i even pulled it up and i was like oh wow, let's just see okay. if the bleeding rates are different in the original study yeah. that came out and nope i I was very surprised, I guess, by the result of this study. Um, looking at it, I was shocked that 50% of the time people chose rivaroxaban. I feel like that's maybe not the way that practice is trended maybe here in the United States. I agree. Um, practice is definitely trended more towards picking a pixaban mm-hmm. over anything else, maybe just because of ease of people being able to dose it appropriately mm-hmm. in the outpatient setting. Yep. Um, so I think that maybe could have played a little bit of an aspect in this too. Although it seems like these patients were followed probably much closer than what we have here and majority of our patients in the United States. Mm-hmm. So I would say that just based off of that alone, you can see that in their time to therapeutic range for their warfarin patients, it was like 65 to 75%, which is like pretty remarkable, right. honestly. Yeah. In the United States, I think we're close to like maybe the 50, 55% right. time in, range. In
1: good ones. In right. Good in really
2: good in clinics, antiquated which antiquated is, ones. I think, the I think maybe the most concerning part about this, because you're kind of comparing apples to oranges at that point, because you're not really comparing what we in the United States are used to seeing for our warfarin patients. So I think it is a little more concerning. Uh, In addition, most of these patients, I looked at the baseline characteristics for all these like, additional or initial studies that we did. And I mean, the study speaks for itself, we are truly including patients that are frail, which I think is a very Nice thing as clinicians to have because then we have the opportunity to kind of think about the patient specific factors in our specific patients instead of just kind of extrapolating what we know from our initial um, clinical studies. And then if you kind of just look, it's kind of nice. In cardiology, we always have these composite outcomes, which can really sway people if they don't really look at the study really closely. Um, And this one being a composite of like the major bleeds, but also like the non-major bleeds. And it really is pulled pretty heavily by like the non-major bleeds, which again, in this study is included if it prompts a face-to-face consultation. And you know, our frail patients in the United States, you know how if anything goes awry, my grandma all the time, she gets a little poke of her finger or anything bleeds and she's on a blood thinner, she immediately calls her provider, which would, that would the spark a face-to-face or at least a call. And in this study, that would count as a bleed. Um, so I think that's something else to kind of keep in mind too, because I don't necessarily think if you go to the bathroom or poke your finger on your fork or your, you know, <laughs> corn on the cob one day when you're having that, I don't really think that should mark as like a bleeding event in the study, which I think could be poorly extrapolated. But I do think this study kind of helps to reflect a little bit on how practice has shifted so quickly Mm -hmm. to DOACs. And I even see it in in practice in the hospital all the time where we have people who stable on Warfarin, been on Warfarin a really, 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 really long time. And then almost like for convenience of providers, we switch to DOAC. So that way they don't have to worry about warfarin follow-up. They don't have to worry about INR monitoring. And I think, and we don't have to worry about drug interactions as a pharmacist nearly as much. I mean, there's some that we have to worry about still, but not nearly as much with uh, our DOAC. So I think that's kind of something that now it's kind of making us reflect on whether we should switch patients to DOACs or whether we shouldn't. And I don't necessarily think it's a clear cut answer, right? This doesn't really give you yes, you should No, you shouldn't. Are they frail? Yeah, maybe most of the patients in the hospital are frail, regardless if they're over the age of 75 or not. Right. And so I don't think this frailty score which i also had never heard of before this i had to look it up and i was writing down all the different combinations that you can get to get to the frail score i don't necessarily think this should be like a definitive yes you're frail keep you on warfarin but i think it should almost be looking at again at the clinical picture patient to patient every patient um again whether they can afford the medication is a huge huge thing in today's society especially with how expensive medications are but i think just again looking at will this patient be able to have, I guess, a better quality of life, not having to move and not having to go back and forth for INR checks or when they're on Warfarin, are they truly stable? Or is this somebody that comes into the ER with an INR of 10 all the time because they forgot what their dose was and they took 10 three times a day? You know, I think it's just kind of one of those. I think DOACs are great and I think they have a place in therapy, but I don't necessarily think they should kind of take the overarching place of everybody, especially right. patients. My grandma, when I had to convince her to get off of Pixaban, it took me probably a whole year. And this was me <laughs> as a pharmacy student. Right. So not, not, not nearly as knowledgeable as I am now in the area, but it took me almost a whole year to even convince her that going to this and not having to go get her INR checked was even a realistic or right. good option. Right. So I do think it's just like maybe case by case still, as we have with all of our patients. So. Right.
1: So so, and I completely agree with you. I think I think that's you know that's a good way to look at things. I guess so. You know, you know, you ran with the, with our cardiologists very very regularly. This paper will hit the hit I, the. Uh, I suspect not just the medical literature, but I suspect it, you know you're going to see a you know a lot of CNN stuff about mm-hmm. it, and a lot of lay literature, you know. So you've got a, a a patient who comes in with a you know a new stroke with atrial fibrillation. Um, and they say, Oh, well, I mean, she's you know, she's pretty much housebound. You know, you know, I just read this paper, it says maybe we should put her on warfarin. And yeah, you know, kind of, you know, you have to look at individual factors. Would this lean you at all towards going, you know, because I mean, up, up until this paper was published, I'd be like, Oh, god, no, you know, have you know, warfarin, let me put yeah. him on a DOAC. What, what are we talking about? What is this, you know, 1995, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, but now it's like, Well gosh, maybe we should consider that. So, you know, I mean, how would you approach that, do you think?
2: Yeah, I do think it kind of makes you pause and reflect, like, should I actually initiate warfarin in this patient based off of, like, these comorbidities Mm -hmm. that they come in with already in the hospital? But I do think one of the main points is that these patients had been stable on warfarin for a long time. These weren't people that came into clinic one day and were like, you know, I'm having a hard time controlling my INR with my warfarin. I need a better solution. These were patients that were just randomly... Switched mm-hmm. kind of out of the blue, I'm mm-hmm. sure for most of them to a DOAC, which again can probably be a little life altering for these people too. They've kind of gotten to the ebb and flow of I need to get my INR checked on Tuesday, right. I get my dose adjustments, yada yada yada. I know how to monitor what I'm eating, and now they have this whole new med that they now have to take twice a day, right. not once a day. Right. Well. of them have to still take it once a day. Um, And then you kind of have those patients who I know they're bed bound, but this is still part of their daily routine, whether their INR checker comes and gets it at their house or whether they have to go in. So I think kind of this abrupt change they did in the study doesn't necessarily always reflect kind of how we dose meds in the United States or at least in clinical practice. If it was a new AFib, new stroke, I still think I'm trending more towards keeping a DOAC for these patients, regardless of how frail they are, especially if you're someone that you know they're bed bound or house bound.
1: How how are they going to get to get their INR? Exactly. Going
2: to get your INR is not a simple thing. And in the United States, they make it very clear in the study that they have a lot of people that go out. They're like basically house calls to get INR checked. And we do not have that (laughs) in the least here in the United States. So I don't think it's necessarily reproducible from Europe or the Netherlands to here. But I do think it does show a good trend that if we have these services for these patients, maybe Warfarin where we can more tightly monitor it, we don't have the variable pharmacokinetics with these drugs that we don't have to necessarily get levels on, but we have these patients who could be 50 pounds soaking wet and 95 years old who are super frail. So I think just kind of thinking about the perfect atmosphere for success was this study for Warfarin. And I don't necessarily think unless you have this perfect storm, whether warfarin should be preferred over DOACs. Yeah,
1: And I think I—I I, I, that was kind of the take I, I drew away from this is that, you know, it, I, you and I, and I suspect some of our colleagues, uh, you know, are, are going to get kind of bombarded when this paper hits. And I think that's going to be my, my you know, standard response is going to be, okay, well, you know, this study is is not really generalizable, I think, to the United States. I think if I take anything from this is just as you said, that if somebody comes in, already on Warfarin um, and some eager beaver, you know, uh, a clinician says, well, why are we doing this? And it's like, well, hold it a second. They've been on Warfarin for years. They seem to be doing well on it. You know, maybe we should just you know, let well enough alone because if in this real frail patient, we have at least some evidence to suggest that we may be doing harm and not good to them. So I, I agree. I think that would largely be my approach. Um, Again, as an aside, I've, I've had enough friends who are antiquated pharmacists. They will tell you that they've caught all sorts of stuff when people come in for their visit. Right? You know, you know. Oh yeah. By the way, uh, you know, my blood sugars have been 500. Uh, have you told anybody about that? No. I'm telling you about it while well, I'm getting my INR drawn. So you know, I a lot of my uh, friends who organic organic coagulators have said you'd be surprised some of the stuff they catch. So, I mean, you know, it is more contact with the healthcare system and especially in the frail elderly, necessarily a bad thing. So yeah. any other things you'd like to talk about? Nope. I all think right. that's it. All right, cool. But Dr. Boyd, thank you so much. Uh, this was cool. This was actually really cool. We'd love to have you back on. Uh, like I said, I, I'd say at least 30 to 40% of the stuff we talk about here in Game Changers is, is cardiology-based. So when you've got the time, I'd My love favorite. to have you on. So, all right. Well, thanks very much, everyone, for joining us for, for uh, this week's uh, Game Changers. Again, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care.
0: Jen here. Be sure to check out our education at CEimpact.com. You'll find it to be your one-stop shop for all the CE resources you need. Become a Pharmacist by Design member today to access it all for free, including CE for this podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week on Game Changers Clinical Conversations.